my hair's on fire about the whole thing. I can't even begin to tell you how pissed off I am. And um, and people are are working really hard to get it fixed. And um, and we know how important it is for people. The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived. The podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. What's that? There's there's smoke coming from room 360, and there's a man, roughly six feet six inches, running outside and rolling in the freshly fallen snow. It looks like his hair's on fire, and he's trying to put it out. Uh, referring, of course, to Governor Charlie Baker, who after yesterday's vaccine reservation debacle went on GBH radio and said he is pissed off and his hair's on fire about the whole thing. And we can put that last comment down in the book of Baker's familiar quotations. To be sure, we'll be hearing it repeated a lot going forward. Heard it plenty of times on the talk shows yesterday afternoon and evening. So what happened? A sudden influx of newly eligible would-be vaccine takers tried to pounce on the chance to reserve their shot. And with a million more folks coming eligible yesterday, that might have been the biggest crowd event since last spring, uh, albeit a digital one. And the state's website theoretically built to handle the crowds that they knew would be coming crashed. Folks were left staring at an error message decorated with a perplexed-looking four-tentacled octopus. Crazy as it sounds, it happened, and we're joined at the end of this four-day snow-dusted week by Erin Tiernan of the Boston Herald, Mike Dean of GBH News, and Katie Lannon of the Statehouse News Service to round up the news and offer us their thoughts. Hi, folks. Hey, where, hey, are, all the, where are the rest of the news service reporters? <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we we brought you out of retirement back into the news service fold, yeah. Dean. Yeah. Well, uh, I can having uh, started and then abandoned two or three different news service podcasts in my time. I think this is a, a fine welcome home. <laughs> well, thanks for saying so, and thanks for coming on the show, um, folks. Let's uh, let's do a quick round robin from Aaron to Dean to Katie, and just give us your your initial reactions of the. Um, of the uh, website issue yesterday morning? Um, well, I would say, you know, when we talked to Governor Charlie Baker the day before the website crash, uh, we did ask, was the site prepared to take on the influx of nearly a million new um, people who would become eligible to receive the coronavirus vaccine and sign up for appointments? At that point, he said that he believed the website infrastructure was ready to handle it turned out that that was not true. Um, and even before the 8 a.m. release of all the new appointments came, the website was down. Uh, it seems like the administration is shifting shifting blame onto PrepMod, the software behind the website. So um, I guess we'll have to see what happened there with why they weren't able to, to handle all of, the, um, all of the people that came on to book appointments. Yeah, and, and PrepMod saying that it... Uh... It was an what do they say here an unprecedented surge in traffic. But I mean, they they, right. they knew how many folks were coming eligible. So uh, exactly, Dean, what do you think? 
it was a moment of hope, I think, after this uh, initial announcement that this was going to be opening up to 65-year-olds. It was uh, seen as moving the plan forward. It was the next step, if not the next phase, the next step in the governor's vaccination plan. Uh, they accomplished over 50% vaccination of that 75 and over uh, you know, age category, and now it was time to move on. This was supposed to come at the same time as the, the great new numbers of Massachusetts being elevated from the back of the pack to up towards the top of performers in the country as far as vaccinations. And this is now the story. This website goes, it crashes. It's something that happens, certainly. But when you know the governor of a state, when the chief executive tells you that we are prepared for something, and then the very next day it fails, and it, it, it reminds me me very much, and some people have made this point of Deval Patrick and the Connector website mm. from all those years ago, which, if you'll remember, was a key part of Charlie Baker's initial plan when he ran for governor in 2015 to say, well, we got to fix the damn website and that you know, I'm Mr. Manager. And that's what he took against Martha Coakley in that race. And we're seeing the exact same kind of state IT failures that are now plaguing this vaccine rollout. Katie? Yeah, and I actually, I, I pulled up this morning a, a 2014 quote from a candidate, Charlie Baker, saying at the time, the people of Massachusetts deserve websites that work, a real sense of customer service, and a state government that owns its mistakes rather than passing them on to its constituents. So, you know, if um, you want to apply the the governor's, the future governor's words to himself now, I guess the the question that I think a lot of people are going to be watching is, does the, the state own this? You know, we've had the governor express anger, but the, the question is going to be what gets done about it. Um, and I think it's not just about this. It's about the, you know, people are frustrated with the amount of time it took to get a call center set up. There, people are frustrated with the fact that there isn't a um, pre-registration system that we've heard so much about that other states are using. Um, and people are just, people are frustrated generally, right? Because they want the vaccine. They don't want to still be, you know, in whatever pandemic lifestyle they're in now. And I think it's, tensions are going to be running high no matter what. There's a, a gubernatorial race next year that, you know, Democrats are going to be running on this. Democrats already are running on this. Um, ben Downing uh, has raised the the vaccine rollout as a campaign issue already. And, you know, there's still a long way to go. Um, to get 6.9 million people or 4 million, if that's the goal, vaccinated. So there's going to be a, a lot a lot more decisions that need to be made and a lot more potential for things to go well or to go poorly. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that uh, pre-registration website that some other states are doing. And uh, that was, I learned from uh, your radio station yesterday, Mike Dean, uh, <laughs> developed by a uh, firm in Burlington, Mass, right around the corner from us here. Um, and and uh, Marjorie and Jim quizzed the governor, why doesn't the state use this uh, talent right here in Massachusetts? And uh, he said, uh, the next few weeks, we might have something to say about that. But a lot of this feels sort of uh, reactive rather than proactive, right? Like uh, setting up the 211 uh, after that had become an issue. And uh, between that stuff and the website crashing when they knew how many folks were coming eligible, how many of these problems are foreseeable? And, and how much of this is, uh, I don't know if excusable is the right word, but how much of it is just the way things fall in an unprecedented disaster? 
Right. Yeah. Unprecedented is the word here. No one's ever had to launch a massive healthcare website during a pandemic where, you know, the entire population 65 and older is going to be accessing it on the first day. However, uh, a big traffic hit like that is foreseeable. And one thing that we're seeing over and over again is that demand is outpacing supplies in every category. Uh, demand is outpacing our supply to keep a website up. You know, it's outpacing the bandwidth of that system. Certainly the vaccine supplies that are coming from the federal government are still trickling in and not nearly the expanded model that Baker has been saying we're going to need in order to get more people vaccinated up. So, you know, what is foreseeable, what is not? Uh, I think that's what lawmakers are going to be talking about this coming Thursday at this uh, first COVID oversight hearing. They're focusing specifically on the vaccination rollout and Baker's role in that. They um, they don't know who from the Baker administration they're going to have testifying before them, but uh, I've spoken to the, the chair people of that committee and they do want answers and they expect to. And likewise, the Senate president and the Speaker of the House also do want answers. So we're seeing Democratic lawmakers step up in their oversight role in a way that really they never have uh, when it comes to Charlie Baker, at least. Uh, and the public is definitely watching. So whose fault and it can be obfuscated obviously you can always blame the it guys you can always say that you uh you thought you had a plan in place but you didn't or that your contractor was the one who dropped the ball which it seems like is happening right now but somebody wrote that contract and it was the government of the commonwealth huh. and uh uh the only other parallel i can think of as far as oversight hearings in the recent past would be uh the registry of motor vehicles uh scandal from what was that the summer of 2019 our, after our, after Baker had made a campaign promise to uh, make customer service at the RMV a top uh -huh. priority, the other side, the <laughs> IT side or or the you know protocol side, facility side, however you want to call it, then failed. Yeah, um, I think that you know what's really or one of the things that is really excusable is the fact that there you know there aren't enough vaccines right now to get everyone appointments. I think people understand that. I think what's not excusable is the fact that you're having these massive technology failures and where Massachusetts. At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, rolling out their their massive contact tracing program, all of those things was sort of a leader in the pack. And now we've really slipped behind. Um, you know, it seems like our vaccination vaccination efforts, if you look at the CDC vaccine tracker, are starting to do a little better. We're getting more shots into arms. But when you just have these kind of massive technology failures, when you don't have a two one one call center that's set up until several weeks after you start pushing vaccines out, I mean, I think that's the thing that the public really feels is inexcusable. Hmm. Katie? And I'll just say, too, one of the things that, you know, I know I keep hearing from lawmakers and they're hearing from local officials and from constituents is that one of the one of the headaches here is that there's changes that just keep coming. You know, the decision to stop sending um, vaccines to most cities and towns for clinics serving their local residents after the municipalities had started holding these weekly clinics and started getting that infrastructure in place. Um, the, the way the prioritization is changing, the 75 plus um, companion policy or buddy system that rolled out after people had already started bringing their, um, you know, older relatives in some cases to get the shots. Um, the, the sense of kind of shifting rules or shifting goalposts is something that on the one hand is to be expected because this is to to borrow the expression that's used constantly throughout the course of the past year they're they're building the plane while flying it um they're developing a, a massive vaccine rollout in the middle of the rollout or in the middle of the early stages at least and it's gonna 
take some time to figure out what to do. But I think that's understandably something that a lot of people are are questioning. How am I supposed to prepare for this when I don't know what's coming or every time I, I start the rules change a little bit. And you mentioned those shifting goalposts. I mean, when you've been kept cooped up in your house, as a lot of folks have for the past year, um, you, you start to get very concerned with uh, fairness and the same rules applying to you that applied to someone else last week. Um, that stuff that stuff takes on some importance. Uh, you, you mentioned the vaccines being funneled toward the mass vaccination sites, Katie. Um, so with that in mind, how are the state's mass vac sites doing in terms of accessibility and um, uh, locations in diverse regions of the Commonwealth? So that's pretty interesting. You know, um, Secretary Sutters and the governor this week did say that a a vast majority of the population, almost 95%, lives within a a 45-minute drive of of a mass vac site or within 30 minutes from one of the regional collaboratives that they're also now really touting. Um, But a lot of people are are pointing out that that's a a concern, too, because if you're getting senior citizens, maybe people who don't have a car or or a reliable mode of transit to get there, that's, you know, that's selecting out the people who can't drive 45 minutes. Or I know my grandparents didn't like to drive on the highway. Um, There's a lot of things going on in a a 45-minute drive that, that might or might not work for some people. Um, particularly if you're trying to focus on, on vulnerable populations at the outset. Um, there, there's been concerns about people with maybe invisible disabilities, how they're able to wait in line or navigate these sites. Um, and, you know, for all the, the efficiency angle, you know, they, the governor and the administration talk a lot about how these are the ones that are most equipped to get people vaccinated quickly to move at a large scale. There's lots of other concerns about who the people are who are going to be served at these sites. Hmm. So if the governor thinks it's going to take about a month to get through these one million folks, um, is are, are are we no longer seeing April as um, when phase three might start that that you and me might be able to go out and get a vaccine? Is is all of this just shifting down the road now? Uh, if if there's still two more groups in phase two after this one million, I think that's going to be decided by the supply from the federal government. I don't think that there's any other factor that um, could possibly have as much influence uh, uh, to the rollout of these vaccines as what is going to come from the supply chain. Uh, if you know the governor mentions all the time that Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> vaccine that's in the approval process right now if that gets approved then that's a whole nother um i believe one shot and one dose vaccine that could really you know boost the numbers here and get more and more out and increase manufacturing uh, of the existing two other uh, moderna and pfizer vaccines but as we saw this week we're getting delayed for the 110,000 or 140,000 that we're already getting every week so um you know to hit that deadline that deadline was set with the uh anticipation of a ramp up of manufacturing and delivery from the feds which we have not seen happen um regardless of what the president's goals have been either so uh, you know this is much more about joe biden and pfizer and moderna than it is about charlie baker when we're talking about a month from now and you do seem to see that, as Dean mentioned, the, the governor talks a lot about that J&J vaccine, that, that one shot um, yeah. with, I believe, the, the cold storage requirements are different for that as well. Um, and it just it seems like that's going to be, you know, the governor has said that would be a game changer. 
I don't know when or how much to expect the game to change based on that. We we don't know. Yeah, and, and remember, at this point, they haven't even moved through and vaccinated everyone in phase one, and it's going to take at least a month, they said, to even roll out appointments to everyone who just became eligible this week under the second step of phase two. Hmm. All right. Well, folks... That's a lot of COVID-related news. Um, let's. Uh, Turns out there is a lot of COVID-related news. <laughs> you know, I guess there's a reason why it's in the headlines every day. Um, but let's uh, let's have a little non-COVID story time. Um, if uh, if if each one of you wants to think about uh, something that's not directly coronavirus related from the past uh, week or so that you don't think was getting the attention it deserves uh, because it, you know, might've gotten boxed out of the very top headline by the coronavirus. Although Aaron, I will say, I saw a nice cover story in the Herald, non-COVID. Remember, remember policing reform? Seems like a million years ago now. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. And uh, and uh, there's some dates on the calendar coming up, and the first one just blew right past, and uh, uh, at, at least one astute journalist uh, realized that what was supposed to have been done by that date wasn't exactly done, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it does really seem like that deadline did blow past. So the um, per the new police reform law that would you know, finally passed a lot of pomp and circumstance last session. Um, There was over a dozen commissions and committees and task forces that were set up. uh, And um, the seating deadline for which uh, membership should have been announced and actually um, a a first meeting should have been held was for this facial, this government use of facial recognition technology, which was also one of the the major issues that almost, um, you know, stopped this law from from becoming a law to begin with. Uh, and so that deadline was on Monday, and it kind of blew past without anybody really paying it much attention. And when I started calling around to legislative leaders who were supposed to have named members, the Judiciary Committee, which was supposed to have members, and, and um, you know, to the governor, and even to organizations like the ACLU, um, not many of them had made those appointments yet. Hmm. Yeah, so um, several of them have now, after we started asking questions, they have named some of the members. We still haven't heard from Speaker Mariano on who his three appointments would be, uh, but I think the, the ball has started started to move, so to speak. Um, so, you know, hopefully they can get those commissions stood up quickly because members from uh, the Black and Latino community are, you know, feeling, expressing the same kind of concerns that they've been expressing um, all along. And for this deadline to kind of pass them by, it just feels like, um, you know, they're being forgotten once again, and they're not being taken seriously. Yeah, we, we got this new law, and it says these things are supposed to happen, but is there actually going to be follow through there? And are most of the dates uh, coming up early on the calendar to do with setting up the commissions and that sort of stuff? Or are, are there any other deadlines in there? Yeah, so the big one coming up will be to seat the, the post commission, which will be the big one, um, kind of the cornerstone of the law that will deal with the certification and decertification of officers. It will be investigating um, to, uh, misconduct among officers. So that one's April 1st. Gotcha. And that's the gotcha. nine. That is a big one. Yes. Dean, what do you got for us? 
uh, as sad as I am to bring it up, we do have some political races to talk about. Uh, not wow. only not only the mayor's race, and let's remember one thing that I think has been kind of lost in, in the COVID stream of things is that we're going to have a vacancy in the mayor's office, or rather we're going to have a, a um, an acting mayor in the city of Boston in a matter of days, depending on when the U.S. Senate comes back and confirms you know, the next round of President Biden's picks that will include Mayor Marty Walsh, and he will almost certainly be, you know, um, promoted to labor secretary by a vote of the Senate that will leave Kim Janey, who is right now the Senate council, uh, the city council president as acting mayor. Uh, and you know, things are still up in the air in a lot of ways. You could say it's an unfinished business, certainly leaving during a pandemic, leaving halfway through, or rather at the very end of a term, uh, will leave the mayor's office open to some criticism. We'll see what Janie does, how much she intends to run, and if she does intend to run, how much she runs against the Walsh administration that she is absorbing and now leading uh, versus all of the other candidates that have come out of their woodwork to run. Uh, Looking at the Statehouse, we definitely saw some action on the gubernatorial side of things over the last week or two. Uh, Ben Downing, the former state senator from uh, the Berkshires, raised about $100,000 in the first week of his candidacy for governor. Um, That is certainly impressive to a lot of people who keep track of these things. If you were trying to take the measure of the Downing candidacy and see how legitimate uh, he was going to be as a fundraiser and, you know, from his kind of more environmental activist base, a hundred grand is a good way to look at it. Um, there's also been, you know, some more political rumblings from the AG's office. Uh, when it comes to that governor's race, all eyes are still on Mara Healy. Uh, she's joining with other Democratic AGs to talk about things like student debt, calling the president to cancel that. Um, that's something, you know, that Elizabeth Warren has certainly been into. So um, it, we could see a more national issue focused campaign if the AG were to decide to get into the race. Um, I'm sure she's looking at Downing's fundraising numbers and seeing if she could match that kind of thing. She can. Um, (laughs) So it's not, however, it's, it's still impressive. Um, Yeah. So, you know, and then we have Danielle Allen, the Harvard political science professor who has kind of been keeping a low profile still in the exploratory phase of a gubernatorial run. Uh, And so people are trying to see what she's going to do, but you know, now is the time. And why is it the time? Because governor Baker is bleeding. Uh, and, you know, the rumors still swirl around whether or not he is going to run for a third term or not. He hasn't tipped his hand one way or the other, whether or not he intends to hand it off to Lieutenant Governor Polito or to run himself or do something else. So, um, you know, one of the big questions here, though, is you can raise money when the governor is bleeding politically because of the vaccination rollout. However, is that blood still going to be, you know, that wound going to be open by the time that people, voters are tuning in a year, year and a half from now uh, when it really is time? to give the Democratic candidate a look. Sure. Will that octopus still have its tentacles wrapped around? Yeah, well, it's only got four now. So it's a quadrupus <laughs> as of right now. It may have two by the time 2022 runs around. Uh, Katie. Um, well, first, I'll just add to, to that list and say we got a, a special election in the House actively going on as well. The the Winthrop and Revere seat uh, formerly held by Speaker DeLeo. That's, um, that contest certainly seems to be heating up as the, the primary gets closer. Um, and elsewhere in the state house, today's the, the bill filing deadline. Um, it's the, the policy season is going to be upon us real soon. We're starting to see um, groups and lawmakers announce what they're going to be really pushing for. A lot of these are 
pandemic-influenced priorities. We saw a, a big coalition roll out this week a proposal to adopt a, a universal child care and early education system in Massachusetts, which would, of course, come with a, a huge price tag, hundreds of millions of dollars, so the exact amount is unclear. Um, something that kind of reminds me of the, the early push for the Student Opportunity Act you're looking at a, a phased rollout. Um, you're looking at no clear funding source, but a, an interest in pushing the state to commit. Um, and all that's coming as, you know, there's still big question marks over the budget, over federal stimulus, um, over what the appetite is for new revenue in the legislature. Um, after the House took some tax votes last session on transportation and the Senate, um, you know, then amid the state of emergency, didn't go along with that plan. You, we were going to have the millionaires tax vote coming up at some point again. Um, it's it's there's going to be a lot to watch on on those fronts. You know, education funding, revenue, the state budget um, as we as we go forward. Yeah, for sure. Happy Joint Rule Twelve Day, folks. <laughs> no Joint Rule Ten Day, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Joint Rule 10 Day is a good time. Um, all right. Uh, any any parting parting thoughts from you folks? Nope. Nope. Good. Just wanted to check. <laughs> yeah, Sam, just uh, I guess my only parting thought is um, make sure all the traffic for our podcast downloads don't crash. Uh -oh. Sounds yeah. bad. <laughs> oh, no. That'd be, a, that'd be a real bad look for us at this point. It's nice, it's, it is nice of you to let people over 65 listen to the podcast for the first time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, we have a pool of a million new listeners just ready to go. Oh, if only, if only. All right. Hey, thanks very much, folks. Katie Lannon from the Statehouse News Service. Erin Tiernan, you can read her in the Boston Herald, bostonherald.com. And Mike Dean of GBH News, tune in to 89.7 FM. Thanks very much, folks. Thanks, Have Sam. a good weekend. Sam. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.